Tonight, I'd like to speak about the essence of the Vipassana practice and what it is that you've been mostly experiencing during these last few weeks. That is the different kinds of happiness. Actually, all of the Buddha's teachings really is pointing to the different kinds of happiness that it's possible for us to experience and how we can cultivate them. How is it possible to develop them? There's an underlying view or attitude which is essential to understand before we begin this inquiry or investigation into kinds of happiness. And it's some understanding of the law of karma, which means that Every action we do, action of our bodies or speech of our mind, has a certain effect. The things are not happening randomly or chaotically, or that our actions exist in a vacuum. When we understand, even to some beginning extent, this law of karma that allows us to take responsibility for our lives, to see that we create through our actions the various kinds of experiences which are either pleasant or unpleasant, which either bring suffering or happiness, that they're not the result of some outside being or outside force victimizing us, or condemning us, or praising us, blessing us. But we are the heirs of our own actions. That gives us a tremendous sense of responsibility and also a great possibility of freedom. That our happiness depends on understanding the law, understanding the Dharma, to see what are the conditions which bring happiness, and then to fulfill them. When we look at our minds, we see that what it is that prevents happiness from arising in our minds and our lives are the presence of defilements in the mind, defilements rooted in greed and hatred and delusion. These defilements are the source, are the cause of our suffering. Defilements, or in Pali the word is kilesa, it's been likened to a heavy cloth which is hanging outside on a line and has gotten drenched in some downpour. You can imagine, I think, the quality of that heavy blanket which is now drenched instead of 
kind of flapping easily in the breeze or the wind. It's heavy, soggy, mildewy, generally unpleasant. That's the nature of the mind when defilements are present. Heavy, soggy, and mildewy. <laughs> so there's no possibility in the presence of those defilements for the mind to experience joy and lightness and happiness and comfort and well-being. There are different levels or different degrees of defilement that we have to understand and work with. The first level of defilement we could call coarse defilements, the very rough ones. And those are the, those are the defilements of mind which compel us to what I mentioned in an earlier talk as outrageous behavior. Just behavior which is so out of harmony with the way things are that it causes tremendous suffering for ourselves and other people. When we kill and when we steal and when we lie and are dishonest and just totally intoxicate the mind in a kind of drunken stupor and get involved in sexual misconduct, all of these are outrageous behavior because they're so out of harmony there's an immediate effect of suffering for us and for others. Then there's a middling level of defilement. Not so strong as that coarse defilement which causes action, but rather defilements which arise in the mind and upset the equanimity or upset the balance of mind different kinds of thoughts of anger or greed or desire or delusion. It's not strong enough to cause us to act in an outrageous way, but it's still it's a kind of atmospheric pollution. Then there's the most subtle level of defilement, which is called the latent or dormant level. This most subtle level of defilement are those unwholesome factors of mind which may not be manifesting in any particular moment but are there as a potential and given some appropriate circumstance will arise in the mind and cause us unhappiness, cause us suffering. This has been likened to the example of striking a match you know, against the side of the matchbox. Until we actually strike the match, the flame is not there. But the flame is latent, or it's potential, in the match and the, the matchbox. When the conditions are right, then the flame erupts. In order for us to begin to open to and explore and enjoy the different kinds of happiness that we're capable of, it's necessary to purify the mind of these various levels of defilement. And each 
level of purification, each stage of purification, brings about its own kind of happiness. So first we work on removing the coarse defilements, on restraining that outrageous behavior, that very disharmonious behavior. And we do this through a level of purity, which is called purity of conduct. We purify our conduct, we purify our actions. We do this in two ways. We do it through the practice of generosity. Some evenings ago, someone asked about the supporting practices which support the development of insight. The cultivation of generosity is one of the basic supports we have in purifying the mind and in opening ourselves to different kinds of joy. Generosity is listed in the in the list of the perfections of a Buddha. Generosity comes first. It is so basic, this openness to giving, to sharing, to letting go. It is exactly the opposite of craving and grasping and holding on and attachment. And generosity can be practiced. We all have developed it to varying extents. It's talked about in terms of three kinds of generosity, or three levels. The first kind is called beggarly giving. Beggarly giving is when we have an idea to give something, but what we want to give is basically the worst of what we have, the leftovers. Something we haven't used for 10 years, has been in the attic, and the thought comes, well, maybe somebody could use that. No, next year I might. I might use it. You go back and forth in a lot of doubt, a lot of hesitation. Finally, the impulse of generosity arises strongly and we give it. It's taken some doing, but it's manifest. It's a step. As we practice it more and more, we begin to reach what's called friendly giving where more spontaneously and with somewhat less deliberation, we begin to share the same level things that we enjoy for ourselves. Just what we would use for ourselves that we are happy to share with others. As we get strong in that, as we practice that, we begin to raise the level of generosity or strengthen it until it becomes what is called queenly or kingly giving. Where it's so strong that we take delight, that we are actually and deeply delighted to give the best of what we have. To share that which is most valuable to us and to take delight precisely because it is most valuable. Because we have so much 
consideration for it, we're happy to give it to someone else. This takes some practice, because mostly we're quite attached to what we value the most. But one of the things to understand and appreciate about this quality of giving or generosity is that just like mindfulness or concentration or equanimity, it is a factor of the mind, a quality of the heart, which can actually be developed. The more we practice it, the stronger it gets. One exercise that I've done over the years as a way of practicing it has been to try to act on every thought of giving that arises in the mind. So when a thought arises, and I'm aware that it has arisen, to give something away, I try to practice doing it. And sometimes it's done very beggarly, with much deliberation and hesitation. Sometimes it's done in a more friendly fashion. Occasionally, it's done with a kingly spirit. One of the things that happens as we practice this generosity is we begin to see that it starts coming more and more effortlessly. In the Abhidhamma, or Buddhist psychology, one of the divisions of consciousness is into what is called prompted and unprompted. And this refers both to qualities like generosity or mindfulness or samadhi, concentration. And it refers to the fact of whether we have to prompt that particular quality to arise, to kind of urge it along, or when it's well cultivated, it arises unprompted, begins to arise spontaneously in in our stream of consciousness. So as we practice generosity, It gets stronger, it becomes more kingly or queenly, and it it starts to come more effortlessly. Contrast in your mind for a moment how you feel when you're holding on really tightly to something when there's that strong sense of possessiveness and attachment and grasping, when there's that strong greed in the mind, contrast that to how you feel when you've just given something with a generous spirit. So obvious what causes happiness and what causes suffering. So we practice it, we cultivate it, we make it strong. The Buddha gave so much importance, so much emphasis to this practice of of giving. He said that if we knew, as he did, the fruit of giving, the benefit of it, we wouldn't let a single meal pass without sharing it. Which is another way of saying, 
to take every opportunity that it has such a potent effect on our well-being, on our happiness, and on the further cultivation of our path. The purity of, purity of conduct. The first aspect is generosity. The second aspect of this purity of conduct is sila, or morality. We've talked a lot about that in terms of the Eightfold Path, right speech, right action, right livelihood, non-harming, restraining those actions which harm, harm ourselves, harm other people. It is an essential foundation to the further development of understanding. There's an example given of the importance of sila, The Buddha talked of somebody who wanted to become an artist, painter. He went to a master painter to learn. One of the first things that the master painter taught this young student, apprentice, was how to arrange the canvas and stretch it on the frame so that there would be something to paint on. He said it would be quite futile for the master to, to try teaching the student to paint, painting on the air. There would be nothing to hold it. There'd be no foundation. You can't teach it that way. Sila is that foundation. The foundation of concentration and wisdom, the canvas on the frame, is this basic development of a non-harming discipline, undertaking it as a training. And what it does is it purifies the mind of this coarse level of defilement. We begin to feel good. It frees the mind from remorse. One of the things that you probably have seen quite deeply in your time here as we begin to go inward and quiet down and are a little less distracted, begin to get the sense of how everything we've done has made its imprint. The imprint of our actions are in the mind. And when memories or impressions of of past skillful actions arise, we feel happy, we feel joyous, we feel glad that we've done them. When memories of unskillful actions, or unwholesome actions arise, we feel remorse, we feel regret. Establishing ourselves in sila, taking that as the foundation training, allows the mind to be free of remorse. And that is a tremendous joy. Not only do we experience the happiness in the moment of generosity and non-harming, the happiness from the freedom from coarse defilement, it also has a wonderful karmic effect. The karmic fruit of this purity of conduct 
is the enjoyment of all kinds of sense pleasures. Why is it that some people find in their lives just enjoyment on all sides? They're in beautiful surroundings and pleasant sounds, nice sensations and good food. And other people find themselves in miserable surroundings and a lot of unpleasantness. It's not happening by accident. If we could see with broad enough perspective, broad enough vision over lifetimes, we see that every situation is the result of certain karmic deeds. The cause of sense pleasure, of living happily in that way, is this purity of conduct. Generosity and basic moral restraint brings this kind of happiness to us. Not only the happiness of sense pleasures as human beings, but for those who are really into the enjoyment of sense pleasures, there are realms, the higher realms, the heaven realms, devoted exclusively to the enjoyment of sense pleasures. And the descriptions of them are wonderful. <laughs> you know, beings there are not born you know, nine months in the womb and then given birth to. Beings there, because of their wholesome karma, this purity of conduct, are born spontaneously. They appear in those realms ready-made at age 15 or 16, you know, just, just ripe to enjoy. And everything is beautiful. Bodies of light. There's no pain in the knee and pain in the back and you know, pressure and pushing and pulling and stabbing. And it's all these nice, light, little vibrations and tingles. You know, luminosity, lum- luminous bodies. Pleasant things on all sides. Pleasant sights and pleasant sounds. Delicious celestial food. There are whole realms for celestial musicians. There's, there's a whole heaven, heaven realm just for the musicians who like music. There's realms for celestial intellectuals you know, those who like that particular sense pleasure. It's all there, ready to be enjoyed. And there's a way to that. And the way is through the development of generosity and the development of morality, of non-harming. That's the cause. That level purity is the cause of these sense pleasures. And so the Buddha pointed out the way. He said, you want this? Cultivate these things. There's also a problem with these sense pleasures and with these heaven realms. There's so much enjoyment, and it's so hectic, and we get so involved in them that it becomes very difficult to actually concentrate the mind. Our our minds are so busy enjoying, and often getting lost in, that we find it very difficult when we're in the middle of unlimited sense pleasure We find it difficult to collect the mind, to restrain it, to bring it back, to make it one-pointed. And that's what's necessary in order to come to the next level of purification, 
the next level of removing defilement, and the next level of happiness. It's like those three go together. There's, there's a certain level of defilements which have to be uprooted through a certain kind of purification, which leads to a certain kind of happiness. Purity of conduct removes the coarse defilements, results in pleasures of the senses, pleasant surroundings, pleasant way of living. The middle-level defilement, those that arise in the mind as mental disturbances that are not strong enough to actually cause very outrageous behavior, but still strong enough to upset us, to make us unhappy, This level of defilement is removed by the next stage of purification, which is called purity of mind. First level is purity of conduct. This is purity of mind. What purity of mind refers to is the beginning development of concentration. And it's what we do here. A big part of the beginning of the retreat is this effort to develop purity of mind. The first stages in the practice of meditation is to begin to collect this dispersed mind that has just been scattered and wandering without any kind of restraint, begin to gather it. We gather it by giving it a simple object of attention, like the rising falling or the in and out we develop some concentration or one-pointedness. I think I've mentioned briefly that there are two kinds of concentration. One where we keep the mind on a fixed object and one when we stay concentrated on changing objects. And it's the second kind that's developed in Ovipassana practice. We take a primary object Stay with that and then note everything else. A common refrain of yogis in the practice is kind of disappointment that you know the fireworks aren't going off. There aren't these you know, great cosmic experiences or astral traveling or levitation or great kundalini experiences or seeing into past lives. And it's true, that usually doesn't happen. And they're not very important. What is important is that every time you are noting an object in the moment, every time you're with the rising or falling, or in and out, every time we note a sensation, or a sound, or a thought, in that moment, this level of purity of mind is being strengthened and deepened. This, level, this middle level of defilement is not present. When we are simply with the sensation of the breath, in that moment the mind is pure. This purifying process is incomparably more important than any 
any kind of fireworks. Because it's in this purification that the transformation of mind is taking place. So don't undervalue your efforts. I think I mentioned the opening night, one of the first nights, how it's very difficult for people to be a judge of their practice. Because generally people apply the wrong criteria to it. This process of transformation is happening in every moment that the mind is attentive. Don't undervalue those moments. This purity of mind frees the mind from this middling level of defilement and it brings about its own kind of happiness which is the happiness of a concentrated mind. And that happiness, you could call it suprasensual. When the mind is very concentrated, it is not pulled out to the enjoyment of sense pleasures. It has no interest in them precisely because it is enjoying something superior. The happiness and this is not some kind of metaphysical, abstract happiness I'm talking about. The actual feeling of well-being in the mind and body, when the mind is concentrated, is far more satisfying and fulfilling, far more sense of completion to it than the enjoyment of sense pleasures. And you probably have gotten, at least in, in some short intervals, a taste of what it's like when the mind is just focused on an object and not dispersed, not scattered, not restless, not agitated, that becomes stronger and stronger and the sense of well-being becomes stronger. Based on this level of concentration, we are then able to enjoy the happiness of what are called the four divine abodes of loving-kindness, compassion, happiness in the happiness of others, and equanimity. It's this concentration of mind which gives power to those four states. So when our mind is collected and we begin doing metta, we are filled with this feeling of loving-kindness or compassion or the others. And so our whole experience of happiness takes on another level another level of intensity, another level of completeness. And it's possible. This is what we're doing. This is what we're practicing. From this stage of purity, purity of mind, it enables us to begin to open into the process of this mind and body, to begin to develop the happiness of insight. This happiness of insight occurs in different stages. It's not the happiness of sense pleasure, 
And it's not the joy of a concentrated, quiet mind. Rather, it's the joy of understanding. We begin this journey of understanding with some degree of focus. We begin first on the conceptual level. We begin to understand what the different elements of the body are, what the different elements of the mind are. We begin to get certain psychological insights. And we watch our mind often enough, and you see the same patterns 10 billion times, and finally some insight emerges. Oh, yes. And this, I'm going to break a little vow I made not to tell any Nasruddin stories. <laughs> Just one. <laughs> he went into a bank to cash a check. And the teller behind, this is in ancient Persia, the teller behind the, the window uh, said, do you have some identification? Kind of looked in his pockets and he didn't have anything. So the teller said, I'm sorry, I can't cash it. So Nasruddin gets a brainstorm. He reaches into his coat pocket, takes out a mirror, looks into it, and says, yep, that's me all right. <laughs> that's the beginning stage of insight. You know, it's like when our mind has become quiet enough through the, through the stage of purity of mind, that is, we collect the mind, we make it somewhat concentrated, so then all this stuff starts to come up. We begin to see the personality level. We begin to see who we are on that level. We recognize the patterns. It's important, it's valuable, but also we don't want to get stuck there. And so take care not to become too fascinated by your reflection in the mirror. As fascinating as it is. <laughs> We all love mirrors. <laughs> but if we can continue just to use the concentration of mind that we've developed, and just to keep noting, coming back to the rising, falling, to the sensations, to the sounds, just noting continuously, we begin to go from the level of content. The content of things, our story, our personal history, begin to go from that level to the level of process. That is how things are happening. We've talked several times about some of the preliminary insights that begin to arise, the insight into Nama Rupa, the fact that in every moment there are two things happening. There's knowing and the object of knowing. There's the rising and the knowing of the rising. Hearing and the knowing of the hearing, moving and the knowing of the moving. We begin to see more and more clearly that what we are is this process of knowing an object, that that's all there is. It's not that this process refers back to anyone, it's not that it's happening to anyone. What we are is this process. And the process is simply those two components arising and passing away every moment. 
Beginning to get a glimpse of this is a tremendously transformative understanding. It's the beginning of not taking this body-mind as self, as I, seeing that there is inherently no solidity to it, no kernel, no core, that we can point to and say, yes, this is who I am. As we observe more and more carefully, the insights begin to unfold. We go from this insight into nama-rupa, and the cause and effect relationship between them, to beginning to see what's called the arising and passing away of phenomena. We get very clear, as the momentum of noting picks up, what I've called the NPMs. As the NPMs get strong, and we're just noting every moment, noting, 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 noting. The mind begins to click in to that rhythm, and more and more effortlessly, we become aware of how in every moment there's simply something arising and passing, arising and passing, a sensation, a sound, a thought, a feeling. And because the momentum is strong from our previous effort of making all the notes, that momentum begins to carry us in a very effortless way. The mind gets very spacious, very open, very clear, and the practice starts to happen by itself. Sort of like, you know, in the old days, the cars that you had to crank up by hand. You had to crank, 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 and then the engine turns over and you run around and hop in, and off you go. What we're doing is cranking up the mindfulness. You crank, 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 note, 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 and then you, all of a sudden it turns over, you hop in, and off you go. <laughs> and that's just how it happens. But it doesn't happen if you don't put in the effort to crank. That's, that's our job. At a certain point, the momentum is there. The momentum is strong enough. And it's not a gift from anybody. And it doesn't kind of just descend from heaven. It's the result of our own efforts. And so the more effort or willingness or wholeheartedness that we're willing to bring to each moment, the quicker we develop this momentum. So then we're in this nice, clear space, and everything is just arising and passing by itself. That's really the first taste of Vipassana happiness. Because before that, as you're all very familiar with, often there's a sense of struggle and pain and difficulty, and the cranking is hard work. But when the engine turns over, you get a taste of the joy, a taste of the happiness of insight. And you find that in your experience, not because anybody has told you, but you find for yourself that that level happiness, that kind of happiness, is much, much, many times greater even in the happiness of a concentrated mind. Because there is the feeling or the taste the beginning taste of coming home. It's as if, ah, this is how things are. 
this is what the true nature of this mind and body is. And there is so much joy in that understanding. And it comes from our own efforts. And so we work, 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 and finally get to a place where it's happening effortlessly and beautifully and full of joy. And lo and behold, right at that time, come what are called corruptions of insight. All these qualities of mind, which we've worked so hard to develop, of mindfulness, concentration, rapture, joy, happiness, equanimity, all of them which become so strong at this stage, all of a sudden are transformed into demons. Why? Not because they've become unwholesome, but because there's so much joy attached to that state that we start grasping. We start clinging to them. People commonly think, when they're in that place, that nobody has ever been there before, that they are the first ones to ever experience it. Because it's so different and so energetic, and the mind gets so attached to it. So that's when you have to come to an interview, and one of us will say, just keep noting, 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 <laughs> noting, noting, noting. So as to let go of that attachment. Essential to continue on the path. And then there's an interesting kind of switch that goes on, or change, you could call it a change of direction, or not really change of direction, but a, a change of atmosphere. Because then the mind, as the noting continues, as we again make the effort to note rather than just be lost in this space, the mind starts to be aware of how everything is dissolving. Begin to see the disappearing of things. And as we put more and more energy and commitment into our practice, the momentum of things dissolving gets very, very strong. And in sitting, for example, or in walking, sometimes whole parts of the body will disappear. Your legs will disappear, your head will disappear, your whole body can disappear. In the walking, the body can disappear. Sometimes you're looking at somebody and they disappear. It's rather disorienting. <laughs> it's fine. It's, it's part of the unfolding of the path. The mind is so tuned to the disappearing side of things, that that's what it begins to pick up. But as this happens, and because it's so disorienting, often people get afraid, they get fearful. And so kind of open their eyes, is the body still here? And then they kind of check it out. And of course that, that undermines the momentum. Stay with it. Because when that starts to happen, disappear. Enjoy it. You'll be back. <laughs> and when you come back, what you come back to is the, the mind then goes through stages of real fearfulness and misery and disgust just with this process because you see that it is, there, is nothing, there is nothing substantial to it. It's, it's constantly dissolving and changing. There's nothing to hold on to. There is absolutely not a single moment of security when we see it truly. And this part of the path, it's really getting a full-on taste of the first noble truth. Not the dukkha of a pain in the knee, 
but the dukkha that's inherent in the very process itself. And this is a difficult time for people. There's, there's often a lot of disgust with the practice. It feels like it's not going well. And there's a lot of general misery. It's fine. As you come in and you find the smiling as you report your tales of woe, you'll know that it's because actually the practice is progressing well. Finally, out of this comes a very strong urge for deliverance. We see so clearly the dukkha of this process, of this conditioned process of things just dissolving all the time, that there arises in the heart this urge to be free. And out of this, this urge to deliverance is another whole stage in the path. It leads us into the next level of Vipassana happiness and a very refined and subtle one, which is the experience of equanimity about all formations of existence. We go from the misery and fear and disgust to a place of a beautiful and refined calm and equanimity and openness. It's the example given is like being in a wide open, clear field on a sunny day. You know, just that feeling of spaciousness and ease and well-being because the mind at this point is no longer reacting. It's not reacting to the pleasant by grasping. It's not reacting to the unpleasant with aversion. There's a feeling of tremendously strong equanimity towards every formation that's arising. Again, this Vipassana happiness, tremendous sense of well-being at this time. The reason that I'm laying all this out is so that you begin to understand that the reference point for the development of the practice is not particularly whether you feel good or you don't feel good. Because as the path unfolds, you will go through different stages. But it's so ingrained in our mind that pleasant feeling means good practice and bad feel, unpleasant feeling means bad practice, and that is not how it is. There's a law, there's a dharma to our path of practice, and it follows follows its own course of unfolding. So we come to this place of equanimity, which again is a very happy place, much more refined than that stage of arising and passing away. And it's out of this place of equanimity, when all the factors of enlightenment are matured and ripened, this is the ripening place for them. When they are ripened, intuitively and unexpectedly and suddenly the mind can open to the unconditioned, to the experience of Nibbana. And that is the highest happiness because it is the cessation of this conditioned existence. It is what is beyond this. It's not subject to this law of impermanence. It's not subject to the law of dukkha. It is a complete place of peace. 
an image which struck me a long time ago uh, to reflect the happiness of this experience of Nibbana. Uh, years ago, when I was just when I was practicing in India, during the summertime, I used to go up to the mountains, to the foothills of the Himalayas, for the hot season. We rented a house. There was this this hill town called Dalhousie, and there was the marketplace, and then about an, I guess it was about a 45-minute walk up from the marketplace, very steep walk, basically up the side of the mountain. There was a whole bunch of houses, and we rented one of those houses. And often as we'd be walking up and down from our house to the marketplace or back, we'd see these old... uh, hill people, carrying these huge, huge timbers, you know, of wood on their backs. And they'd they'd be bent over double, so they'd be basically walking with their backs parallel to the road. This huge beam of lumber, timber on their back. You know, 15 feet long, 20 feet long. It was amazing. And right at the top near where our house was, the, the road leveled off. We walk up this steep 45 minutes, and then right at the top where it leveled off, there was a chai shop, a tea shop. And often you'd see these people kind of struggling up that mountainside with this huge burden. I mean, it was unthinkable to me how they could even do it. And then they'd get to the top, and they'd take the burden off to have a cup of chai. Imagine the feeling of relief, you know. Finally getting to the... That's... an image, a metaphor for the happiness of opening to the unconditioned. It's putting down the burden. It's important to understand that the practice is unfolding lawfully. It's a function of our effort, of our willingness. It's a function of our past practice and development. It is not a race. Competitive sitting is not helpful. even though it can come up very strongly in the mind. When I was sitting with Upandita here two summers ago, as that was coming up in my mind, you know, how is everybody else doing and I'm not doing it well enough in the whole comparing, judging trip, it was springtime. I was just walking outside, just by the frontier, and I saw the flowers. The flowers were coming up and blooming. And there was a real lesson from those flowers because some of the flowers had come up and blossomed and opened. And some of the flowers had come up but were still closed. And some of the other flowers were still just beginning to come out of the ground. And it was such a good reminder to me that you can't pull the flowers out to make them open more quickly. That each one in turn, you keep nurturing the soil 
You know, and each one in turn will grow and will blossom and will open and will flower and be beautiful. It is exactly the same way in the practice. Nurture the mindfulness. And in its own time and in due course, everything will flower, everything will unfold. Your job is to take care of this delicate plant. It's very delicate and it needs a lot of care. If you do that, then all of these kinds of happiness will begin to arise in one's life because through the practice we have established ourselves in purity of conduct, we are establishing ourselves in purity of mind, and we are opening ourselves to this unfolding of insight. Just to close, um, as an expression of the natural unfolding of our path of practice, the Buddha talked about how one thing leads into another quite naturally. It is in accordance with nature that for one who is free from remorse, satisfaction arises. And that for one who is satisfied, joy arises. And it is in accordance with nature that for one who is joyous, the body is relaxed. And for one whose body is relaxed, happiness arises. It is in accordance with nature that the happy person's mind is concentrated. And for one who is concentrated, there is understanding and seeing things as they really are. And it is in accordance with nature that one who understands and sees things as they really are becomes detached. Now one who is detached will experience the knowledge and insight of liberation. So it's understanding the Dharma, understanding the law, trusting that unfolding, nurturing the practice, nurturing the mindfulness, the attention. Thank you. If you have any questions, perhaps those of you who do can come up to the front and the rest of you can continue to nurture your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.